Well, hey, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of Events with Benefits. Our podcast is designed to help nonprofit organizations like yours raise more money and achieve greater success at your fundraising events. My name is Danny Hooper. I'm a fundraising auctioneer and uh, uh, kind of a co-founder here of Events with uh, Benefits. And my partners are Renee Zhao from Donation Match. It was actually Renee's idea uh, to start this podcast. Renee, how are you doing? I'm doing well today. I'm, well, I'm fine. I'm ready for another great interview. And uh, our other partner here, uh, Ian Loth from Winspire. And uh, Ian is the uh, VP of Marketing here at Winspire. How you doing, Danny? Looks like you brought some of that uh, Vancouver weather with you here today. Yeah, Victoria. That's actually where I live is up in Victoria on uh, Vancouver Island in Canada. And I'm pretty excited about today's podcast uh, because we, for the very first time, have a Canadian guest. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we produce the show down here in Laguna Hills, California, and we've had some remarkable guests. But uh, we do have a very special guest today. She's a friend of mine. Her name is Diane Young, and you would describe Diane, I think, as a a strategist and a visionary. Uh, She has been in the nonprofit space. Uh, We asked her the question and her answer as to how long she's been in nonprofit uh, space. She said, since I was a child. She's got a great story to tell. She's brilliant, and she's achieved some incredible things uh, when it comes to fundraising, and I think there's going to be a lot of key information here for our guests today. Absolutely, Danny. And, you know, strategy is one thing that I think is really important for nonprofits to to really think about and understand because so many of the nonprofits that we work with and, you know, uh, that we've talked about on this show, you know, really get lost in the tactics, right? There's certain tactical things, you know, I'm talking about aspects of your event or ev- events, you know, as a whole that, that you do year after year just because it's always been done, right? As opposed to taking a step back and taking a wide look at your overall annual strategy and how each and every event fits into it. And then each aspect of your event fits into your event strategy, right? So having those big picture conversations can be so important to making sure that you are reaching your goals and and getting to the place where where you want to be. And she talks a lot about that, how she did that with various organizations here, you know, taking it from, you know, going 10x, you know, going from a $4 million per year to $40 million, uh, you know, just with individual organizations because they're thinking strategically. So that's that's an important takeaway I want you guys to listen for today. Yeah, and what I appreciate about Diane's experience, too, is that she actually started, you know, she may have been involved with nonprofits since childhood, but she actually got into the fundraising space through business. And you have to listen to her story, but um, just the way she fell into it, but applied her business strategy and her grit and really taking a, I think it was, more of an out-of-a-box approach, not necessarily copying others, but um, looking at it from um, a what-can-we-do-differently uh, perspective is what gave her a lot of her success, and she's uh, we're lucky that she's sharing some of that with us. And you'll hear Diane talking about putting the D back in fundraising, so we'll uh, get started right now and uh, see what she means by that. So, Diane, it's great to have you uh, as a guest on our uh, show here today, uh, Events with Benefits. And uh, you and I have been friends for many, many years. We go way back. Um, And this is very special for me because you are the first Canadian that we've had as a guest on our podcast. Well, thank you. It's certainly a pleasure and an honor that you've asked me to do this, Danny. You betcha. Well, Dan, let's uh, just start maybe with a little bit of uh, your background. Tell us some of your personal history, your story, and uh, what drew you to the uh, to the nonprofit space. Well, it's 
I guess the, the drawing to the nonprofit space started before I even knew that there was such a thing when I was a child because my family was very community service oriented. And so I was volunteering before I even knew what it meant. And honestly, I thought everybody did that. I didn't know it was optional. So when it finally dawned on me that not everyone I knew was doing the same thing, I was already so invested in um, service that it just continued throughout my life. So I've always volunteered. My career, my professional career, interestingly enough, whether it guided me or I guided it, I'm not sure, but has always been externally focused. So, for instance, when I was with TELUS, a telecommunication company similar to AT&T in the States, uh, I started out in a, in a wrong fit for me, which was accounting, and that was definitely a wrong fit for, for the creative side of me. So I uh, made sure that I kept my eye on the ball and moved through the company into community relations and eventually became the director of community relations. And what that meant for that company was that I was responsible to be the face of the company and to forge the relationships in the markets in which we did business. And it was a perfect fit because um, the company then was was donating uh, to various charities, but they were doing it randomly and, and in a scattered fashion. And so what I did was I researched and found a program through the School of Business at Boston College and went through that program called Corporate Community Relations. And I was the first Canadian certified through it and uh, came back with those learnings. And TELUS then was, the, was awarded, a, a national, or awarded nationally for being the first company to have a fully integrated corporate responsibility program because it was very new then. We, we in Canada didn't really give much thought to it. We were generous, but we were certainly not strategic in that generosity. So that's how it all started professionally. And um, then when in, in Edmonton, where we did not have a children's hospital, I was approached because they'd been trying for at least 25 years to get that project off the ground and just couldn't seem to get the momentum going. And somebody thought I might be able to help, which was an interesting request for me because I'd never really thought about professionally doing anything in the nonprofit sector. But it appealed to me so much because we desperately needed this children's hospital. So uh, I left TELUS, and instead of starting my own business consulting practice then, which was my, my goal, uh, I took the position as president and CEO to get this children's hospital built, equipped, populated with the best talent, and most importantly, branded, because that was the, the real challenge. So kind of a long answer, but that's how it happened, Danny. That, that is an unbelievable uh, task. Uh, you know, how do you, uh, there's not many people in a lifetime would have an opportunity to basically go out and start a children's hospital. So where did you, where did you start when uh, you landed on the ground with that project, and, and where did you begin? Well, where we began was there was a small foundation in place, but it wasn't doing anything. If, if it were a small business, it would have been going bankrupt because the, the people there were good people. There were, there were a handful of people in the foundation, but they were into fundraising. It's F-U-N without a D on it. Uh -huh. They would go out and do you know golf tournaments and bake sales and those kinds of things. But really, what they didn't understand is that they weren't even making a, bringing in enough revenue to actually keep the operation going. They were, yes, bringing in some money, but it wasn't enough. And so um, 
what I did was just bring some business practices into that foundation, and we started to run it like a small business. We, instead of being profitable, of course, the revenues all went into the work we were doing. But I had to change the mindset. And that was probably the biggest hurdle because it was so unusual to think that way. So that's how we started. And um, we went from revenues of, oh, just about $795,000 to $12 million within a period of about mm, four years, five years. Wow. So how did you do that, Diane? Where did that money come from? Obviously, you were out there cultivating a lot of real key relationships with people, I imagine, who came in at uh, some pretty significant levels as, as sponsors or patrons, or how did you go about doing that? Well, it was a little bit of relationship repair because, of course, prior to my starting, people had gone out and tried to strike some of these relationships and did, in fact, do that. But what they didn't do was steward them. And so people had given uh, large amounts of money but just never heard anything after that, didn't hear, was, we, was this children's hospital actually going to happen? If so, how was their money being used? And in some cases, some of the, um, the people who had naming rights had been promised the same naming rights. So I had to go in and start with them not with a clean slate. And it was, it was really a challenge, but we, we got it done and... Uh, you know, I built some relationships that I have to this day, and that was in 2000. So we're looking 18 years ago, and I still have those relationships today. And to me, Danny, that's the key. No matter what business you're in, whether you're in the car business, whether you're in the coffee business, doesn't matter what business you're in, you're really in the relationship business. And if you, if you just get that one nugget, the rest of it starts to fall into place. And how do you go about cultivating, uh, and as you say, stewarding, uh, relationships with these key players? Well, first of all, in the way I did it was, again, I used a lot of business principles, but it's to, it's to listen more than you speak. So when I would make an approach, for instance, there was a very large, wealthy family in our city who had never visibly been philanthropic. They were philanthropic, but in their own country, which was not Canada, it was in the Middle East. And so I decided, I said to the staff, you know, we need to go where, where others aren't going because the, the philanthropic people in our community were very, you knew who they were. They were a handful of people, everybody went after them. And I said, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We're going to go down the layer. And uh, we're going to have to work a little harder, but if we get those relationships, they will stay with us. And so I chose this, this particular family, very, very wealthy family, and called to see if I could just uh, get an appointment. I said, I have, a, I have an opportunity that I would like to discuss with, with the, uh, the founder. And, uh, of course, the executive assistants are often the ones that are a little more difficult to get past because they've been told to screen, and that's exactly what they do if they're good. But I just said, you know, it's a, it's a business opportunity, and uh, I would like to speak directly with the founder. If I could just have 15 minutes of his time, that's all it will take. So I, he got curious about that, why, how a charity would have a business opportunity, and that was how I got in the door. But what I truly did was when I got to the meeting, I just said, you know, before we start, first of all, I, I'm very interested in your business, and I got him talking, and people love to talk about, about either themselves or their businesses. And so that's what we did. And as he was talking, I started in my mind to connect the dots where I could see alignment with uh, some of the things we were doing and how it would help them strategically. 
And that's, that's really what I found I was doing instinctively in a lot of these meetings. Hmm. Oh, well, and uh, obviously they came on board in a very significant way, and uh, you brought a lot of people uh, into the fold and have continued to do so year after year for so many uh, nonprofit organizations up in our part of the world there, Diane. It's been amazing to watch you work. Uh, let's just get back to the Stollery Foundation and how you built it up to a $12 million. Was that $12 million a year? Yes, it was, and uh, that was the point at which I left, but I also left a strategic plan where the organization would be bringing in $20 million a year by the year 2011, which happened. Wow. Let's talk about some of the events that uh, you helped orchestrate uh, during your tenure with the Stollery Children's Hospital Foundation, and you talked that the, your predecessors were doing the bake sales and the, and the small little events, and what types of events did you create that, uh, that were real winners? Well, I, I can't take credit for creating them alone. Um, what I, what, how it happened was when you have these positive relationships with, with people who are donors or the true philanthropists in the community, they too have ideas. And so it was having those kinds of discussions with them. And one good example is a golf tournament. One of the, one of the significant individuals in our community had this idea that he wanted to do a golf tournament with the proceeds going to the hospital. Well, Danny, as you know, golf tournaments are so ordinary and common. I mean, everybody does them. So I, um, I said to him, are you sure this is what you want to do? Could we maybe come up with something else that would be more unique? But he was an avid golfer and no, this is what he wanted to do. So I said, well, if we're going to do a golf tournament, it has to be different than every other golf tournament going. And he agreed. He said, yes, and what I can bring to the fold are celebrities. Uh, people who... Pe- Celebrities are people who other individuals want to be seen with or want to know or want to at least meet. And so that became the edge. And, and what we did together, it was with the Oilers uh, and, and Sam Ebehassan, who is known as the Tailors of the Stars, uh, with who started it, and you know Sam very well. Very yeah. quiet, humble individual, but very, very well-connected and influential at the same time. And a great and tailor. So, and a great tailor. He's a great tailor. So this guy, Sam's making suits for all the hockey stars. Oh, cool. All, and uh, so, yeah, very well connected. Great guy. He, he is. I mean, he still does Wayne Gretzky's uh, uh, wardrobe. So just to give you an example of the caliber of, of his work. Just a quick um, quick little aside here, Diane, while we're talking about Sam. I, uh, I wear Sam Abahassan suits on stage when I'm doing auctions. And um, I put a suit on on Saturday night down here in California for an auction. And I looked inside to see when he made that suit for me. It was 2002. And the wow. suit, the suit still looks great. That's the quality of his work. So there's a little free plug for Sam Abahassan if you need a nice suit. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and a very generous individual as well. I mean, he's he's forever giving uh, custom-made tailor suits as auction items, as you know, Danny. Yeah. And they they command a, a really nice price. So that was very helpful. But what Sam, the most important thing that Sam did was that he brought. Uh, golfers that nobody else could get. And he also brought, was able to get, we worked together on the items, but unique, unique opportunities. And they were all experiences. They weren't things because people are, I think, less interested in, in, you know, getting the tangible 
pieces of whatever, whether it's artwork or, you know, some are still interested. But generally speaking, people are now more interested in experiences that they can't buy. And so that's what Sam, like Sam was, I think, one of the first ones that uh, was able to work well. And I, I brought the, the uh, introduction to the table, actually, but he was able to, to close it. Uh, because of the caliber of people that would come to this golf tournament, he was able to bring an opportunity to golf at Augusta, not attend the Masters, but actually golf there. And nobody had done that before. So those are the kinds of things that we were able to do together to make that golf tournament uniquely different and be a million-dollar golf tournament. Yeah. And, and it generated that kind of money for many, many years. Yes. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about another event that uh, you uh, organized uh, for the Stollery, the Snowflake Gala. Yes. Well, Snowflake Gala uh, is is obviously one that's close to my heart because it was so very special. And again, it was unique. When I started, it was the same as any other gala event, gala black tie event, where you had the, the reception, you had the dinner, you had a silent auction, and... Um, that was about it. So what we did, I said, if we're going to do this event, first of all, the organizers were wives of very influential people, so I had to tread carefully because they thought they were doing a good thing, and they were. The only problem was they weren't working to a budget. So they were spending as much money uh, putting on the event as they were bringing in, so it was almost a wash, which just was a lot of work and a nice event, you know, it was a party. So, again, I said, we have to put the, the D in fundraising here, and we can't continue this event unless we can have it all underwritten, number one. And number two, we want to make it very unique. We want to, so children, we, we brought children in, and it was a black, the only black tie event in the city where children were involved. Uh, I don't know if you can hear those dogs barking, and I'm very sorry, but I don't know what they're up to out there. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> uh, uh, so we're, we're dog lovers here on this podcast. Okay, well, just I wasn't sure if they were interfering with your ability to hear me. No, not uh, at all. So we just got a little chocolate lab pup, a thirteen-week-old pup. So I haven't slept for two weeks. So yeah, oh. let your dogs bark. It's not a problem. <laughs> well, she has four of them, so there are a lot of them. <laughs> um. So we're talking about Snowflake Gala, and interestingly, too, Dan, uh, you should mention that uh, you did this on a weeknight. We, well, we did it on a weeknight because it's in December, Danny, yeah. when, when everybody's calendar is so full. So we mm-hmm. have children, they come in their little gowns and their little, you know, tuxedos. And, but what we did was we created, and you know this, we created a wow moment when you walked in the door with decor. Mm-hmm. It was like you walked into a giant toy box and you were the tiny little people. For instance, we had uh, a music box. But the music box was huge, and the ballerinas in the music music box were real. So we did things like that that people hadn't seen before, and they they came year after year to see what we would do to change the theme of it, uh, but yet make it really incredibly impactful when you walked in the room. The other thing we did was we made sure we had silent auction items for children so they could bid too. And it took them, oh, I don't know, 15 mm-hmm. seconds to realize how a silent auction worked. And the parents were delighted. They were, and we had a children's activity area so parents could actually eat their meal in peace. We had volunteers that would la- look after the children and assist them so that they could find their children and then their children could find them. We had whole turkeys brought to every table. So it was a family 
uh, almost like a family Christmas meal where mm-hmm. everybody ate together. We had a dance where, where, where um, dads were dancing with daughters and moms were dancing with sons and kids were dancing with each other and themselves. And then these children, much like at a lake property, grew up having made friendships at Snowflake Gala. So eventually we had teenagers and so we have a lounge in a, and where they served mocktails. And so the event grew and was different each year so that people just wanted to come and see how it would change. It grew from just under 600 people to 1,500 the year I left. We sold out. We couldn't, we couldn't accommodate any more people. Oh, I know. There's always a long wait list to try and, and get in. Let's just uh, talk about, we don't have to talk hard numbers, but this obviously was a very a huge budget production. Uh, you very quickly referenced the importance of uh, having it underwritten or ha- finding underwriters for this. So just explain to our the listeners what exactly that means and how you went about that so as that this event, uh, as expensive as it was to produce, was profitable. Well, what, what we did when I looked at uh, what it would take to create what I just described to you, uh, it would take a lot of money. Um, I mean, I'll just, I'll just uh, digress for one moment. Where this thinking came into play to have things underwritten was when the Stollery uh, Children's Hospital opened. It uh, is a hospital within a hospital, which is a unique I don't know in the United States if they have that. Maybe they do, but it was very unique for Canada. Mostly we had standalone hospitals. So our little baby hospital lived inside a facility that had been around for 100 years, and everybody knew. You would point to that space and say, oh, there is the university hospital, which was the adult acute care facility. So I had to brand this thing so that people would understand that when they gave their donation to the adult acute care facility, somehow, you know, 20 cents or 30 cents didn't migrate its way into the children's hospital. That wasn't the case at all. It was very independent. So what, what we decided to do was an ad campaign, which hadn't been done before for a hospital. Um, in Canada, we're very uh, humble and very quiet about the things we do, which sometimes does not work to our benefit, in this case, wouldn't have. So launched an ad, a million-dollar ad campaign. We didn't have a million dollars. So I had to get that ad campaign underwritten or I couldn't do it. And that's where I saw the magic in getting other people to pay for what you need. So coming back to, to Snowflake Gala, um, I used the same principle there and I approached uh, companies to say, you know, this is, what, this is what the vision is and here's the piece you can fit into. And BioWare was one of the first ones that came in. And BioWare does all the games, you know, the... Uh, video gaming. I'm not a game player, the video gaming, right. Yeah. Um, so they underwrote the whole children's activity area because it made sense for them to do it. And they brought their product in and they were actually able to use it as a showcase for their product. Mm. And so that's how I started to get things underwritten. And we had zero expense for that event. So everything we brought in was pure profit. And I got everything sponsored right down to napkins almost. You know, I just looked at every piece of that event and thought, what can we get somebody to put their name on? And that's, that's really how we did it. So we raised um, $895,000 net. Net. Profit. Unbelievable. Yeah. Diane, this is such gold, everything you're sharing here, but what a takeaway uh, for our listeners uh, on this episode. Even if you're running a, a, a small nonprofit and a much, much smaller scaled event, uh, the principles apply and principles are always 
principles. And uh, underwriting works equally as well if you're, a, say, a little rotary auction or a little service club auction as they do for a huge foundation like the Stollery. Isn't that right? Well, they do because the Stollery was not a huge foundation. It was a tiny little foundation when I started. Well, really true. tiny. And so uh, you have to think big. I mean, I always say dream big. Don't dream small, because if you dream small, it'll only get smaller. If you dream big, you can always shrink it in. But if you're a visionary and you're passionate about what you do, oh, my gosh, people want to help you. They mm-hmm. just do. And, and so, um, you know, if, if there were any sort of nubs to take away, one is build relationships. Don't go out and ask for money. Ask people to become involved because it makes sense for them and target companies that, that kind of have an alignment or at least th- have their thinking is the same or their values are the same. Look for something where there's a point of connect so it makes sense for you to be approaching XYZ company or, you know, Joe Blow the person. That's number one. Number two, be strategic. Make sure that there's something in it for them. People don't want to admit that, but particularly for businesses, Oh, if there's something in it for them, it will be a long-term relationship, not a one-off. And third of all, steward that make them feel that they are your biggest contributor, even if they're your smallest. Make them feel valuable because, again, that makes them want to come back year after year after year. And the other thing is, excuse me, is to make sure that after they've done something for you, that they're acknowledged. And, and so that they can see, like often what I will do, and I know it's become pretty ordinary now, but I still do it because people like it, rather than, you know, a plaque or, or whatever. Get them a memory book that they can put on the coffee table in their reception area and feel proud about what they're doing in the community. And don't make it full of words, make it full of pictures. Because pictures, you don't need a thousand words. A picture will do that for you. Mm-hmm. So... Those are some of the things that, um, you know, like, I'll just give one more example. At the hospital, a lot of people have donor walls where they've got all the names, you know, of their donors, yeah. which is very nice. We did a galaxy so that you could be a planet or you could be a star or you could be something that you'd find in a galaxy. And then um, for the last, for our last uh, Snowflake Gala there, I wanted to have a song that said thank you to the 1,500 people that were in the room, but I couldn't find a commercial song that did that, so I wrote one. Uh, and it was called Bright Shiny Star because that's what people in that room were. They were stars to these children in the hospital. And I had an eight-year-old girl sing it. Well, if you don't think that connected 1,500 people in a way that was memorable, um, I, I can't even tell you the, the impact it had for those people. So you have to be very creative. You have to think differently than everybody else. And that's not always easy, but that's the best way to become significant in your community. Well, the fantastic uh, information you're sharing, Diane. This is just awesome. Uh, let's just uh, quickly touch on some of the other organizations that you went on to uh, uh, work with uh, after the Stollery. I know that uh, you, and I, 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 I'm still indebted to you for introducing me to the David Foster Foundation and getting me involved uh, as their uh, auctioneer for a number of years. That was uh, due to an introduction that you made. I know you worked a lot with the David Foster Foundation and um, let's talk about that one maybe a little bit and some of the other organizations that you've served. Okay. Well, with David Foster, <clears throat> I was approached by his daughter. I, I know his daughter, and she asked if I would become involved in doing a big event again in Edmonton, probably one of the biggest um, star-studded events, I think, that we, we had in terms of raising money for charity. Um, 
but it was it was a little different in that it was a production. And uh, the one thing that I, I said to David is got to be really careful because, you know, people are willing to come and support if the money stays in our community. This money was going to the David Foster Foundation, which is lo- located in, in Victoria in, uh, in Canada. And, and I said, we have to be really careful. So we have to, again, find a way to connect it with something here. And how we connected it was with the Children's Hospital because the money that the David Foster Foundation raises is to help with expenses when when, um, the parents of sick children have to travel to a medical facility that is not in their community. What the David Foster Foundation will do is help to pay their mortgage because often they they have to leave work and they'll only get paid so much money depending on the company they work for for so long and then they have no income mm-hmm. so you've got all these mounting expenses and and uh, no no way of covering them so the david foster foundation helps in that regard so that to me was how we connected it right into our community and um, that's what what made it work i want to put a plug in for you danny because what um we did was uh david of course has his own troop of people that he brings with him uh, to do these events. And, of course, he had his own auctioneer that he felt he had worked with and who had done a good job for him. And uh, uh, Diane just brought me breakfast and put it beside me. Can you believe that? <laughs> uh, so anyway, <laughs> uh, he, uh, he was pretty adamant, and his whole production crew and so on. And that was the other thing I said, you know, Dave, uh, David, if, if you want to build bridges in this community, the best way to do it is to use local talent. And uh, he said, but I want this to be so successful. And I said, I, I understand that, and you know the people that you know who make it successful, but I know the people in this community who will make it successful for you here as well. So he was, wasn't, wasn't going to give on the production team, and I said, well, the one you need to give on is the auctioneer because – Danny has the ability to pull these people in, the ones at least who are from Edmonton. But he also, I'm sure, will have the ability to pull in the people that are flying in for this event. And I promise you, you will, make, you will have a greater return if you use Danny than if you bring somebody who is unknown in this market. So he very, very reluctantly did that, Danny. And uh, you showed him what I knew you were capable of showing him. So that's how that happened. And, of course, you helped raise the close to million dollars in that one evening. Yeah, it was quite a night, I remember. Yeah, and then uh, we were able to go on and do about uh, probably about another four or five events with him in Napa Valley and Toronto and all over the place. I remember Andre Bocelli was entertaining in uh, Toronto at the event, and he donated a couple of tickets on his private jet to fly to Florence, Italy to stay with he and his wife in their home. So, yeah, I got to see some pretty cool things working with the Foster Foundation, as did as did you, Diane. Um, now, let's talk real quick, and thank you very much for the plug there, but let's talk quickly about uh, a great organization that, that you helped to, to get off the ground, and um, I know they were really struggling, and that's an organization called Little Warriors. Right. Little Warriors is um, an organization that deals with child sexual abuse a subject that people tend to uh, not want to talk about because it's it's heartbreaking, number one. Number two, it's never going to happen in their family, or if it is happening, they don't want to talk about it. And we wanted to shed a light on it because it's epidemic. And I know in the States, I believe there's an organization called Darkness to Light that does a similar thing. 
Um, so we, uh, Glory Meldrum, who is the founder, was uh, abused when she was eight years old and uh, shared her story with me, and it just broke my heart that as an eight-year-old she was living in a household with abuse every single day, and nobody would believe her. So I got involved because I thought, we have to, we have to make this happen. And Glory's dream, again, she was dreaming big, was to create a ranch where children who have been sexually abused can come to heal. And uh, But the ranch is full of professionals, highly, highly skilled professionals, to work with these children through art therapy and music therapy and, of course, the hardcore therapy as well. But the children actually come and stay there for a month at first, and then they they come sporadically throughout the next the following year. But the biggest thing that happens for these children is they form their own community with other like children, so they don't feel so alone and so isolated. And um, so what we did was, and Glory was a real push. I mean, she, you know Glory, uh, mm-hmm. Danny. She's a very very strong-willed person, mm-hmm. and so what we soon realized is I needed to be her balance. I needed to be her softer approach where she was the stronger approach. And together, we were able to make many of these calls, and I was able to introduce her in because she was not a fundraiser. Uh, she has her own uh, uh, PR firm, marketing firm. So I was able to introduce her into a lot of the uh, significant donors in the community. Plus, she had clients, too, who were willing to support this dream of her. I mean, she did an amazing, amazing thing in Canada. There's nothing like it. And I'm not so sure there's anything like it in North America. We did our research. We weren't able to turn up anything. There may well be, but we couldn't find it. And so... um, it took a lot of people believing this was possible, and in, indeed, we did get that ranch built. And it's uh, it's a very you know it's a very proud thing because these children now have a place to go where they feel safe, where they meet other children who have gone through some trauma as well, so they don't feel so alone. But they also know that they have a place where they can go back to, and the parents go as well, and the parents stay with them. So it's an amazing, it's amazing facility, amazing program, and I was very, very honored to be part of helping make it happen. Well, you played an instrumental role in laying out the strategy for that, and, and in fact, that's what you do. And uh, let's just, uh, before we wrap here, Diane, um, if people want to get in touch with you, uh, you are, I think, at your core, uh, an unbelievable strategist, a great visionary, and um, are you available to uh, help other organizations, or if uh, people want to contact you, are you, um, are you available? Absolutely. They can contact me at www.youngteamlimited.com, and that's Y-O-U-N-G-T-E-A-M-L-T-D.com, or they're welcome to call me at 780-905-3753, and I'd be happy to help in any way I can. Great. You've been just a remarkable guest, uh, Diane. It's been a pleasure. Of course, we've been friends for many, many years, and uh, you are our first guest on Events with uh, Benefits from Canada, and I think you, you, you did us proud. Thank you so much, Danny. I just hope that there are people out there who've been able to take nuggets away, just as they do from you. Uh, You know what you did with your book and with the workshops that you run, that's so valuable because what they are is they're little gems that even if there's one takeaway, it puts them in a better place than they were before. So hopefully uh, today we've done that together as well. Well, you, in fact, uh, were very instrumental in helping me get that book written and uh, getting those seminars organized. So uh, that's another story for another time. But Diane Young, thanks for joining us here today. 
Thank you, Danny Hooper. Have a wonderful, wonderful Monday. We'll see you back in Canada. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the show this week. For show notes, special offers, or to listen to previous episodes, you can visit us at eventswithbenefits.com. Please also consider subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. And if you enjoyed the show, do us a favor and write us a review while you're there. If you have any questions or feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at hosts at eventswithbenefits.com. We'll see you next time. <laughs>